So have you ever said this phrase? It is what it is. I think probably in December, when we were in the process of selling our home and buying our home here and moving, I probably said that about 17 times a day. It is what it is. What does that mean? Well, you know, it means, oh well, I mean, this, this is how things are. There's not a whole lot I can do about it. It's just, just the way things have worked out, and it is what it is. And that's life, right? I mean, there are moments in life where there are things that are beyond our control. There are things that, that we can't do anything about. There comes that moment where we are helpless. We've pulled together every deduction we can possibly think of. Everything from a child credit to uh, medical bills to cupcakes, gourmet cupcakes that we bought for our clients. Man, we've pulled all those deductions in. And it's finally come time that we've got the number. It's the final figure. It's, it's not going to change. This is what we owe on our taxes. That figure is not going to change. It is what it is. You've studied really hard. You've done the best, you very best on all of your math tests. You've even done extra credit work. Everything from extra word problems to essays on Einstein to even buying your math teacher gourmet cupcakes. But final report cards are out now. Your grade is on there. That grade is your grade. It's not going to change. It is what it is. You've brushed. You've flossed. You've used whitening strips. You've used that mouthwash that colors your teeth so you know where you missed. You've done everything. You even quit eating gourmet cupcakes. But now you're at the dentist. And he's about to walk in and, and look at the x-ray of your teeth. Your x-ray is your x-ray. It's not going to change. It is what it is. But what if we're not talking about taxes? What if we're not talking about math classes? What if we're not talking about cavities? What if we're talking about your soul? What if we're talking about what it means to be right with the one true living God? What if we're talking about your eternity? How would we respond to questions like that? Well, some people might say something like, well, you know, I, I was a kid, and a kid crossed the street, he invited me to church camp, and, and I went, and I, I think one of those nights, I, I think I remember, you know, asking Jesus into my heart. Someone else might say, well, you know, I got baptized in the creek behind Broken Elbow Baptist Church. I, I remember the day just like it happened yesterday. Somebody else might say, well, my granddad, he used to take me on Sunday mornings to Mountain Holler, First Free Will, Foursquare, Pentecostal, Saddlebridge Community Church down there on the frontage road. He, he knew where to take me. Somebody else might say, well, I talk to God every day. Me and him, we, we kind of have an agreement. Someone else might say, well, you know, I, I'm not involved in church, never really been involved in the church much, but, you know, I, I know that the man upstairs, he's, he's taking care of me. I'm not living the way that I should, but, hey, you know, it is what it is. Do any of those responses just, just bring confidence to mind? Do, do any of those responses make us feel like there's this huge stack of evidence that comforts us when death comes and when our life on this earth is over? 
What if I were to tell you that things like it is what it is, and boys will be boys, and well, there's nothing you can do about it, are the absolute worst way, the most miserable, most discouraging way to live your spiritual life? And what if I were to tell you that there is a a better, more affirming, more exciting way to exist on this planet? A way that really does help us function on a daily basis as a friend of God. What is that way? Well, let's find out. Look with me, beginning in Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul's writing here to Christians. He's writing to people that were committed followers of Jesus Christ. And how did he know that? Well, because he knew them. For a while, he was kind of their pastor. He had seen them come to faith in Christ, and then he had seen them live out their faith in Christ. He had seen them make a profession of faith in Jesus, and then he had seen them live out that profession in their life. But when he was writing this letter, he wasn't with them anymore. He wasn't their pastor. He wasn't around. He was pastoring a a different church. He was over at Alcatraz Baptist Church because Paul was in prison. He was in prison for his faith. He was in prison for his Christianity. He was in prison for following after Jesus. And so from prison, he writes a letter to his friends back at Philippi, and he wants them to know, he wants to challenge them and encourage them to keep loving Jesus, keep trusting Jesus, keep obeying Jesus, even though he was going to be gone for a while. I hope we don't miss the huge, non-subtle hint that Paul seems to be laying down here. You see, in our culture, there is a tendency to put some unnecessary importance on preachers of the gospel. And I'm not just talking about superstar preachers of megachurches or or the preachers that have their own long-running TV shows. This tendency is just as applicable to the little country church way out in the boonies that's got less than 20 people coming. And the tendency is this, the church rises and falls on the pastor. In other words, if there's no pastor, the church might just kind of go through the motions. Or the church won't function, they won't do ministry unless the pastor says to go do ministry. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to work myself out of a job here, okay? And I'm definitely not trying to diminish the authority of the leading and the teaching that a pastor is supposed to have. But I sure don't want us to miss that Paul seems to be making a pretty clear point here. He wants his friends in the church. He wants us as believers. And he wants these Philippian believers to not make their love and their trust and their obedience of Jesus just tied to him. He wants their love of Jesus, their trust of obedience, and their trust and their obedience to Jesus to be tied to Jesus, not just to somebody else. Paul wants their greatest passion and their their greatest love to be obedience to Jesus Christ, to follow after him, and to follow Jesus all the time. That sounds kind of hefty, right? I mean, follow Jesus all the time? I mean, that sounds impossible, right? I mean, can any of us follow Jesus and love Jesus and trust Jesus and obey Jesus all the time? No, we can't. But there is something that we can do. We may not be able to follow him perfectly, 
But there is something we can do. Look what Paul says next. He says, work out your salvation. Loving and trusting and obeying Jesus, it's work. Salvation is work. It's not just something that you do once and then put on cruise control for the rest of your life. There's more to it than that. Have you ever seen a a kid blowing out a a trick candle on their birthday cake? (laughs) It is really funny. You know, they they blow the candles out and and everybody cheers and all those candles come right back on because they're a trick candle. See, that is the very nature of how sin works. It's how our flesh works. We blow out the candle of sin and we go, ooh, I'm good, I'm fine. And then we turn the other way and and it's right back there. See, we don't get a, a break from pride. We don't get a break from temptation. It's always around. I could preach the greatest sermon you think you've ever heard in your life. And maybe you already feel that way this morning. I could preach the greatest sermon you think you've ever heard in your life, and I can still go get in the car and argue with my wife or my kids on the way home. You know why? Because that's how our flesh works. You see, sin never goes away. It's it's always there trying to to pull us back. And so Paul's advice is, is not small here. You see, just like the enemy, sin's desire is to distract us from what is good and right. Sin's desire is to distract us from that which is good for our lives and good for our souls. Sin wants to discourage us from following Jesus. But it's not just distraction, and it's not just discouragement. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says this, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's a strong word, seeking someone to devour. You see, the enemy wants to devour your life. The enemy wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your world. He wants to destroy your church. He wants to destroy your community. He wants to destroy your emotions. He wants to destroy your soul. That's his goal. And so we don't get a free ride away from pride Because the enemy is is constantly lighting that candle right in front of our face. And we don't get a vacation from temptation because the enemy is constantly lighting that candle again in front of our face. Now, in, in some ways that sounds so discouraging, but that's exactly why Paul is writing this. Because of the nature, the devouring nature of the enemy... Paul is writing to his friends, and he's saying, look, salvation can't just be something that you did with Grandma. Salvation can't just be that that one day that you joined the church or the one day that you were baptized. Because of the nature of how the enemy works, salvation has to be today. It's got to be right now. We can't afford to just live in way back when. It's got to be right now, today. Paul's writing to his friends. He's wanting their greatest passion in life to be to work out their salvation. But but this sounds strange, right? Work and salvation. I mean, I thought we couldn't work our way into heaven. What's, What's Paul talking about here? This is what he said to the church at Ephesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Bless Paul's heart. He must have had too much coffee. He's confused here, right? I mean, he's saying to the Ephesians, hey, it's not works. 
But it seems like he's saying to the Philippians, oh yeah, it is works. Is that what he's saying? Is Paul saying that we can work our way into being right with God, that we can work our way to heaven? No, not at all. Notice Paul says we are supposed to work out our salvation. He's not saying work for our salvation. Think of it this way. Imagine I go buy a mobile phone, and I don't get the phone activated. Well, if I don't get the phone activated, I'm not going to be able to use that phone because activation is the very first step of being able to use the phone, being able to make some calls. And suppose I never charge it. Suppose I get the phone and I just throw it over on the table and, and I don't hook it up and the battery dies and I don't recharge it. I'm not going to be able to use it. It's not going to have any power. I won't be able to do anything with it. I'm pretty sure most mobile phones also have the uh, capacity of what's known as to, to update your roaming capabilities. My phone provider says that if I will do this every few weeks, if I will update my roaming capabilities every few weeks, I might have benefits like this. Longer battery life. Fewer drop calls, fewer block calls, clear, crisp connections in more areas, ability to connect to the digital network in more areas. That's pretty good benefits if I will just keep my phone updated. So the picture here is this. Having a mobile phone is a, a neat and noble idea, but that phone only has actual value if it's activated, if it's charged, and if it's updated. See, salvation with God, it, it sounds like a neat, noble idea. But that salvation only has actual value if it's activated, if it's charged, and if it's updated. Paul is saying, work out your salvation. And what he's saying is this, take your salvation all the way. Paul is not saying, hey, I just want a first down. Let's just do first and ten, and let's be done after that. Now, Paul's saying, touchdown. Take it all the way, this is not just a one-shot deal. He's trying to encourage them that their greatest passion should be to follow after Jesus on any given day. Because this is what Jesus said. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross annually and follow me. Is that what the Bible says? No, nah, I don't think that's what Jesus said. This is what he said. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross only at camp and revival and maybe homecoming and follow me. Is that what he says? No, that's not right either. Oh, here's the right one. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross only on Sundays and follow me. No. This is what Jesus actually said. If anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny Himself. He must humble himself. He must submit himself and yield himself to me and take up his cross daily and follow me. You can't leave salvation at camp or at the front of the church or in the baptistry or at grandma's house. It's not what salvation is. Jesus says our salvation is something that we keep and we keep using and the using of the salvation, the loving of our salvation, is what makes our salvation true and real. Not just a moment way back when, but a moment way back when that's still working today. It's the very nature of how salvation works. How do you do that, though? Work out your salvation. I mean, that sounds a little bit like church language. How do you, how do you work out your salvation? 
Well, working out your salvation is not just having information about Jesus Christ. It's not just believing facts about Jesus Christ. Salvation in Jesus Christ is life. It's the very nature of what it means to be saved. You see, salvation in Jesus Christ is designed to affect how you think and how you act and what you do, how you spend your money, the way you parent, the way you talk to your parents, the way you handle yourself at work or at school, the way you act towards your boss or your teacher, the way you act toward complete strangers. Salvation in Jesus is designed to affect what we watch and what we say and, and what we do and where we go. It's not just a one-time thing. It is a life. A verbal profession of faith in Jesus is not the end of salvation. It's the beginning. The moment of conversion is not the end of salvation. It's the beginning. This is how Paul said it to the church at Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. A new creation, a, a new life, a new beginning. This is the design of salvation. New life. Not new life for a few seconds, but, but new life, period, with huge exclamation points after the period. Imagine, if you will, that I decide to bake a cake. I can do this. I'm all right. I'm a decent cook. So I decide to bake a cake, and, and I go to the grocery store. I get all the ingredients, and I bring them back home, and I lay them out on the counter, and I go, okay, that's done. Cake's all done. <laughs> no, that's, that's foolish, right? Now I'm going to go turn the oven on. I'm going to preheat it. I'm going to take all that stuff on the counter. I'm going to mix it up just the way you're supposed to mix it. And then I'm going to take that batter, and I'm going to pour that batter into that pan, and I'm going to put that pan into the oven. And then I'm going to take my fingers and I'm going to scoop all that leftover batter out of that bowl before I do the next thing because that's what you're supposed to do. And then once the cake is baked, I'm going to take it out. I'm going to let it cool off. I'm going to put some icing on that cake. And then I'm going to share the cake because that's what it is. It's not just a bunch of ingredients sitting over on a counter. It's not just a bunch of information. Salvation is life. My wife and I have four kids on the day that each of our kids were born, we did not sit in the waiting room and go, okay, boy, that's done. Man, we, we got that whole child thing over. And we've done with the whole children thing. Man, God, whew, God we got that out of the way. No, that whole child thing, it, it was just starting, you know. And I'll say this, now that I've come here, man, it's really just starting. I'm, I'm going to have four teenagers in a few weeks, you know. This having a child thing, it's not a one-time deal. It keeps going. See, we've been called to do the child thing beyond graduation. We've been called to do the child thing beyond marriage. And see, according to what the Scripture says, I'm supposed to be a faithful father and a, a faithful leader and a faithful servant, a faithful challenger, a faithful encourager, a faithful entertainer, a faithful friend, until they stand over my casket or I stand over theirs. It doesn't stop. It doesn't end. Paul's writing to his friends. He wants them to see that their salvation is not a one and done. It's not just a first down. It's a touchdown. It's, it's all the way. You, you keep working it out. It's not something you leave on the counter. But it's something that becomes who you are day after day after day. What kind of attitude should we have when we're working out our salvation? This is what Paul says. The next part of verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
fear and trembling. Now, does that mean that we're supposed to be over in the corner, all hunkered down, trembling and shaking, just waiting for God to strike us with a lightning bolt for watching too much reality TV? Yes. If we're talking about reality TV, you definitely should be looking for the lightning bolt. But if we're not talking about reality TV, then no, we're not supposed to be afraid of God in that manner. The fear and trembling here that Paul is writing of, it's, it's that understanding of who God is on a daily basis. It means that, that we're constantly living with what we hear about God on Sunday mornings. It, it means that at 2 o'clock on Tuesday, if we're at the doctor, if we're in traffic, or at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon when school's over and, and we're already in an argument with our parents or, or whatever it may be during the week, that in those moments of life, fear and trembling means that we remember that this God is indescribable. We remember that this God really did hang the stars in the sky. And he knows them by name. And he knows us by name. And we take the bigness of God and we bring it into that moment. Fear and trembling means that we live in awe of God. That, that we stand back and, and we just constantly gaze in our mind and our heart at how big and how awesome and how great God is. We stand in awe of God in the sense that there is absolutely nobody like him. You're never going to find anybody like God. There is no one past, present, or future who ever even remotely measures up to the greatness of God. And so we stay in awe and, and fear and trembling of his greatness. And we stay in awe of God because we keep remembering his boundless, endless love. Love that sent his only son to absorb the penalty of my sin and your sin. Fear and trembling means that we never lose sight of our awesome, indescribable God, and we bring him into all the moments of life. We work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. This is what Jesus said. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do not worry about tomorrow. Seek God and God's ways first and most. I'll speak to the men first, the fathers, husbands, grandfathers, whatever title you may own. The most important thing that you need to do well is not your job, and it's not your sports, and it's not your hobbies. It's not even being a dad or a husband or a grandfather. The most important thing you need to do well is seek first the kingdom of God. Ladies, no different. Young people, no different. Children, no different. There's, there's no greater thing that we need to do well on any given day than seek first the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said it. We need to seek God's kingdom first. We need to seek God first. We need to seek him well, and we need to seek his ways well. We really can't just wait Sunday to Sunday. We have to be engaged. Some people might say, well, I mean, that, that sounds like a great idea, but <laughs> I don't think I can do that. Man, you don't, you don't know what I got on my schedule this week. Man, you don't know how hard things are at work. You don't know how hard things are at home. You don't know how hard things are at school. Man, I, I got problems. I got trials. I got difficulties. I don't even know if I understand what it means 
to be in fear or trembling of God. I, I don't know what it means to stand in awe of God. I don't know if I can work out my salvation. Honest statements. And for those honest statements, Paul must have known you were going to say that because he's got some advice and some counsel and some good news for you. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the greatest motivational tool ever invented by anyone ever. Paul says, you guys are worried about working out your salvation. You're, you're wondering if you can do it. Well, here, let me encourage you this way. He says, God is the one doing the work. God is at work in you. The energy, the ultimate energy is actually not your energy. It's the energy of God working inside of you. This is how Paul said it to the church at Corinth. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. There is some really fun math here in this verse. And here's the first part of the math equation. We did not create ourselves. God created us. We didn't create ourselves. We are created, but we didn't create ourselves. God created us. Here's the second part of the equation. Christians are saved. Christians do not save themselves. God saves us. And so Paul takes that, and he, he puts that math together, and he says, look, look. Look at what God is doing. Look at the greatness of God's power in your life. Look at the greatness of the power at your disposal every single second of the day. Look. Look what God's doing. And why do we need to look? Why is it so important for us to keep looking at the power of God in our lives? This indescribable God, this majestic God working inside of our lives. Why do we need to look at that? Because sometimes we get tempted to rabbit trails. One of those rabbit trails sounds a little bit like this. Well, God has provided the way of salvation, but you know, i got to do my part. Here's the problem with that. The Bible says we were dead in our transgressions. Dead people don't have a part. You know, that's kind of how it works. And if we don't go that direction, we might go the other direction. We might go the direction and say, well, I mean, if God does everything, well, I'm, I'm just a robot. You know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not needed then. But here's the thing. A dead person that's been brought to life by the merciful hands of God through the person of Jesus Christ does not go over in the corner and pout because they found out they couldn't do it on their own. No, the clay doesn't look at the potter and say, I don't like what you made. The clay doesn't look at the potter and say, look, I, I'll tell you what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. No, the clay is always stunned and always shocked and always amazed that they are no longer dug deep down, dead in the ground somewhere, but that someone has gone over and got them out, pulled them out, given them life, and shaped and formed them into something beautiful. The clay says, thank you, potter. How can I follow you today? What can I do for your glory today? Because your glory it's for my good. I want you to think of some of the things that you're dealing with in your life right now. Things that some of us deal with every week. Things that mark our culture in almost every corner. 
things like sin and pride and arrogance and self-centeredness, but also things like anxiety and stress and grief, things like discouragement, depression, and despair. See, the, the enemy tells us to look at those things and to say, it is what it is. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has a completely different story to tell. This is what J.C. Ryle says. We have a Savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. If we are not saved, the fault is all our own because Christ is just as willing to receive and pardon as he was willing to be taken prisoner, to bleed, and to die. You see, the gospel does not say, hey, it is what it is. The gospel says, here's pardon. Here's forgiveness. Here's salvation. Here's freedom. Here's life. From the foundations of the world, from before the foundations of the world, the message that God was sending through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus was not, hey, it is what it is. No, the message that God was sending before the foundations of the world through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not, it is what it is, but was this, I am who I am. And friend, who God is, the indescribable God, the one true God of the universe, who he is, is all that we need. All that we need. Let's pray.